You may be seated. Before I get to the sermon, I just want to take a second and mention the Advent candles. We have two of them lit now, both purple. The first one symbolizes hope, and as we shared last week, it's sometimes called the prophecy candle. And in particular, you can see in the prophet Isaiah that they foretell the birth of Christ. In fact, just a little hint in the sermon, we're going to look at there's going to be a whole list of prophets who had either a prophecy or a pointer of some kind to Jesus. The second candle is also purple, is, represents faith, and it is called the Bethlehem candle as a reminder of Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem. Well, today, this is our second week of Advent, and we're looking at, in our series, the four songs of Christmas, four things that four different people said. And last week, we looked at Mary's song. Today, we're going to be hearing from the first person that is mentioned in Luke's Christmas story that's, that speaks to us. That's Zechariah. So we're going to, in just a second, read together Zechariah's words. We're going to get some background to understand better what was going on then. And then we're going to look more closely at what Zechariah said. And you're going to find that it's very rich. It's packed with many, many good things. So remain seated. And let's read together from the screen Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 79. Let's read. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I'm going to start with some background and start by reading a couple more verses from Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So the first person in the Christmas story that Luke mentions is Herod also known as Herod the Great. Herod was given 
the rule of the land of Judea by the Roman Senate several decades before Jesus was born. Herod's family was from Edom, not from Judea. Herod was powerful, he was a very skilled builder, and he was evil. He was powerful. Herod was given the land of Judea, but he wanted more, and he took more land by force and was able to keep it. He was a builder. Herod reconstructed and beautified the second temple. He built Caesarea. And when you look at the name Caesarea, you notice that it's named after Caesar. It's on the Mediterranean. It apparently was a very beautiful city that he designed. And I heard on Jeopardy this week, reminded <laughs> that Herod built the, the uh, desert fortress of Masada. He was a very big builder. With the temple, the first temple was built by Solomon, and it was big and beautiful and awe-inspiring, but it was destroyed when the Babylonians came and, and took Jerusalem. Well, after the, and, and he also then took the people uh, from Judea into exile. Well, after 70 years, they're allowed to return from exile. They come back and they build another temple, the second temple, but it was smaller and less impressive. Now, the temple was a public building of sorts. You could call it a public work. Well, you know what? They funded public works back then the same way we do today, through taxes. That meant that the people in, the Jewish people in Judea, they're paying taxes to Rome first. They're paying taxes to Judea just for the regular running of the government. And then they're paying extra taxes for all of these building projects. And they had no say in the matter. So it's not surprising that there is some evidence that the people really weren't all that excited about Herod beautifying the temple. I mean, it was nice that it was there, but it was all coming out of their pocket. And then Herod was evil. In the book of Matthew, you see uh, you, that there were some wise men, men who studied the stars in the east, probably in Persia, and they saw in the stars and somehow connected to the Old Testament the prediction, the evidence that there was a king being born in Judea. And so they travel probably a couple of months to get to Judea and they follow the protocol of the day. They go to the current ruler, who is Herod, and they ask the question, hey, we've seen the signs in the stars. There's a new king born in Judea. I bet that was a surprise to Herod. He sweet talks the wise men and says, hey, when you find the little baby, come tell me. But they don't. They do find the baby. They do worship him, but the angels warn them and they go home a different route. And, and Herod doesn't know. He only knows the town where, where the baby was born because that's in the prophecies. And so Herod is the king that ordered the death of all of the baby boys in Bethlehem after Jesus was born. And he did it because he was trying to eliminate any threat to his throne. He's evil. That's the situation for the first Christmas. So we meet Herod, and then we're told that Zechariah is in the division of Abijah. Well, that takes us back to what I talked about last week, that the priests, since the time of David and Solomon, had been divided into groups, and they, as groups took turns, 
serving at the temple in Jerusalem. We're also told that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God. But when you look at the rest of the Bible, you realize they were not naturally righteous because none of us are. Now, again, righteous means right living, having a right heart attitude towards God, obeying God's law. Well, none of us are naturally righteous, yet we're told they are righteous. The only way that can happen is because God is working in their lives, and he makes them righteous. But they're not perfect, and I'm pretty sure that their friends and neighbors saw their character and how they lived. And so you have these outstanding people that God highlights. And then when you, but when you look at what comes next, it does not seem to fit. Because some people think, and I think all of us at times think, good people shouldn't have bad things happen to them. And yet what we're told next is they had no children. Now, back then, children were considered a gift. In fact, if a married couple did not have any children, many people thought, you know what, they have been cursed by God. I don't know what they did, but it must have been really bad because they have no children. So you can imagine the pain and the disappointment that Zechariah and Elizabeth had because they had no children. Well, Zechariah is part of this division, this group, and it came time for Zechariah's group to serve at the temple. I want us to take a minute and look at what we think the temple looked like back then in Zechariah's day in, during Herod's time. So you can see there's an outer wall around the whole outside of the whole compound, and there are various gates where you can come in. And when you come in, this whole outer area is called the court of the Gentiles. Anybody can go there. Jews, Gentiles, anybody. But then you see this dashed line here that are coming next, and it has the word balustrade. We understand that was a wall about so high, about knee high, with signs on it that said any Gentiles that crossed this, and you could have jumped over it, any Gentiles that did would be killed. Only Jews are allowed in the inner part area, and in, in this outside area, and the women's court. So this is Jewish men, women, and children are allowed here. But then to get closer to the temple, you come into the court of Israel, and I believe that's where the men would come, the heads of the household would come to offer a sacrifice. But they could only go so far, because now you're in the priest court, and only the priests, descendants of Aaron, can be in that court, and they're working. They're offering the sacrifices, they're doing the other work that is needed to keep the temple operating as it should. And in the priest court, you've got the altar where they burn the sacrifices, and you have the holy place, and inside of that, the holy of holies. Well, the holy place has several things that the priest would, would support and work on, like the altar of incense, but only those, as far as we know, only those priests who were assigned to go in would go in there. So you can see, you can almost look at it as rings of exclusion as they are there. Well... One day, during his service, and again, Zechariah is working primarily in the priest court. One day, he's chosen at random, and he goes in to the holy place alone to burn incense on the altar of incense. 
So you can imagine him gathering up all the various, he needs the coals and he needs the collection of incense and whatever shovels and tools that he had to, to do what he needs to do. But imagine that you're Zechariah. There hasn't been a prophet to, to your people for 400 years. There hasn't been a major miracle in a long, long time. It seems like God has been silent. But if you stop and think about it, you realize God might not be speaking in that way, but he has not been absent. The Romans have occupied Judea for as long as you can remember. You've, been, you've served as a priest for decades, and nothing out of the ordinary has happened. Now, this is a special occasion, and I guess Zechariah might have, have had a few butterflies in his stomach because he actually gets to go into the holy place, to the altar of incense. He's right there next, close to the curtain, and on the other side of the curtain is the ark, which represents the presence of God. And so he's focusing on what he has to do of to, to, to offer the incense. And then all of a sudden, there's an angel. And so, and Zechariah is surprised and he's afraid. We know he's afraid because in Luke 1 verse 13, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John, his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So notice what you see here. Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying for children. Almost certainly they had been praying for years. And God did not say yes for years. When we pray, God answers our prayers just as he did then, either with a yes, a no, or a wait. And often the wait looks like silence. Now, Zechariah is told, he and Elizabeth are going to have a son, and they are to name him John. So if you go back and look at the Christmas story, you'll notice that, both, that God names both John and Jesus. And when it says that John is to not have wine or strong drink, that's kind of a pointer to the Old Testament about Nazarites. John is set apart for God. Notice what the angel says in verse 16. God will use John to turn the people's hearts back to God. Now, the Jews are already religious. But being religious is not necessarily the same as rightly loving God. And John's message, when you hear it, repent, which means to turn. Turn to God, forsake your rebelliousness. So think about this. If God is going to use John to turn the people's hearts back to God, that means that the people have turned away from God and are disobedient. And that's us, naturally. Well, after the angel makes his announcement, Zechariah asks a question. He says, how will this be? Well, apparently in that question, he expresses his doubt, his disbelief about having a son in his old age. 
And we can be pretty sure that's the case because the angel then answers and says, Zechariah, because of your doubt, you will not be able to speak until this is all accomplished, until it's all done. Now, this conversation with the angel and Zechariah took some time. And we can see that Zechariah is late coming out of the holy place. We know this because we're told that the other priests are wondering where Zechariah is. You know, imagine they're looking at their watch. You know, it just doesn't take that long to offer the incense. And he's not supposed to do anything else. So why is he taking so long? Well, Zechariah finally comes out, but he's unable to speak. Very unusual. Well, Zechariah goes home, and about nine months later, his wife Elizabeth has a baby boy. And as the angel had predicted, Zechariah and Elizabeth and all of their friends celebrate because they have a son. They wait eight days after the birth to circumcise John because that's what Moses' law requires, that you were to wait those eight days. The day of circumcision was also the day when the baby was given his name. Now, this was a community event. Family, friends, everybody's there. They're all celebrating with the family. And everybody expects the baby to be, to be named Zechariah. Because that was tradition. Tradition was very important. Well, we're told that Elizabeth tells them, oh no, no, not this time. His name is to be John. So somehow, Zechariah must have written a note to Elizabeth to explain what had happened and what was going on. Well, the people didn't believe her, and so they turned to Zechariah. Is she telling, is this, is what she, is what your wife saying true? Is his name really supposed to be John? So he writes down on a piece of paper and says, yes, his name is John. And at that moment, after nine months of silence, Zechariah is able to speak. And he says what we just read together a few minutes ago. So let's take a look at what he said. In verse 68, he begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Zechariah is focusing on God. A devotion that I read this week said all of us are naturally God-forgetting and God-replacing. You know, you and I can easily go through a day without thinking of God or thinking about His Word. And it turns out the more often that we go through a day without thinking about God, the easier it is to take another day without thinking about God. We get busy with our plans and with interruptions and difficulties and, and with our hopes and everything else. And it can be so easy just to forget about God. We can and we do put ourselves at the center of our lives over and over and over again when God is the one that deserves to be there. We're God forgetting and we're God replacing. Zechariah focuses on God and he doesn't just focus on him, he's worshiping. He is delighting in God. He goes on to say, God has visited his people. God has not forget, forgotten his people. God still cares for them. God is working. He was working then. He came at just the right time. He's working today. He comes at just the right time when you and I are having difficulties. Now, I will confess, we usually think he's late because we want the problems fixed, you know, as we're walking into them. 
Oh my goodness, a problem? Oh, look at what God did. Isn't that wonderful? Let's just go to the next thing. And off we go. God is never late. He is working. That was true then. It's true today. God does not leave us alone. And then Zechariah says, God has redeemed his people. That word redeemed doesn't mean much to us, but it did to them because it still happened back then. You could get yourself in such a predicament that you could be sold into slavery. You could end up in a situation where you were in debt and you could not pay it. A relative who you would call a redeemer would come and they could buy you out of slavery or pay your debt. And Zechariah saying is God is doing this because it's not a physical debt, it's a spiritual debt. We're all slaves to sin, we are all spiritually in debt to God and we cannot pay it. And so God redeems. He pays what we owe. And then he continues in verse 69 talking about a horn of salvation. That word horn is a picture of strength. Just like last week, Mary talked about God's arm. Arm being a picture of strength. So God has a strong salvation. His salvation is certain. His rescue, it is powerful and it's effective. He just passing mention of, to David, but that right there connects you to the understanding that from the Old Testament, the Messiah is going to come, that, that comes is going to be a descendant of David. And then he talks about the prophets, all of the Old Testament prophets. And what you see in the prophets, and we talked about this last week as well, if you put up the slide, a whole bunch of different people in the Old Testament talked, either gave a prophecy about Jesus or there was a pointer to Jesus in their writings. So Moses and David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, and Malachi. And these are not all of them. As Mark Van Gill shared last week, there's over 300 prophecies and pointers in the Old Testament. Some clearer than others. And what you see in this list and all of the prophecies they talk about is that God gave plenty of evidence ahead of time. And then what we see in the New Testament is that the early Christian church used these prophecies as a way to validate that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, you look at the book of Matthew, over and over again, Matthew says, it is written, it was written in the Old Testament, and now look, it's happening. It was written, it's happening here. They would also point especially to Isaiah to show how Jesus had to suffer because that was a big problem for the Jews in that day, that, that, that idea that the Messiah would have to suffer. You have all these pointers, the evidence pointing to Jesus. Then he goes on in verse 71 that God saved them from their enemies. Now the Jews had physical enemies. They'd had plenty of them over the years. In Zechariah's day, they had the Romans. But mankind's biggest enemy is Satan. Satan himself rebelled against God. Was able to get a third of the angels to turn and rebel. Satan is the one who encouraged Adam and Eve to rebel against God. He's the one who encourages and entices you and me to turn away from God and to chase our desires. And he loves to see one person hurt another. He loves to see one group of people hurt another group. He loves to see us destroy. Why? Because he hates us. God has saved us from our enemies. Verse 72, God shows mercy 
to us. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Then he talks about God's covenant. So many times in the Bible you can see that phrase, God's covenant, and add another word. God's covenant relationship. Covenant relationship was something they understood back then. It was both legal and personal, usually between two kings, two countries, and it had requirements, and it also had consequences for failure. God's covenant relationship with us is different in this way. God is the one who begins the relationship. He's the one who maintains the relationship because he knows if he left it up to us to keep our side, we'd be just like the nation of Israel. We wouldn't do it. We couldn't do it. So he does it for us. Then verse 73 talks about Abraham thinking of God's promise to send one who would bless all the nations of the world. Then in verse 74, he says why, part of why God saves us. He saves us so that we can serve God without fear. When do we as people serve God with fear? When we are trying to do it all ourselves. When we're trying to please God, trying to earn God's favor, trying to get the brownie points, however you want to say it. Because there's these questions that come with that. You can't get away from. Did I do enough? Did I do it right? Did I, did I mess up? Did I mess up so bad I just scratched out everything good I just did? did has, can somebody else interfere with what I've done? I very much appreciate the honesty of Martin Luther. Once he was asked, do you love God? And his answer, love God? I hate God. He didn't play around with words. He told you what he thought. At this point in his life, Martin Luther had given up his career in law. He'd gone to, gone to college, was going to be a lawyer to please his dad. Some major life event. He instead becomes a monk. He learned Latin and Greek and Hebrew. He studied the Bible. He lived a very regimented life with few pleasures. Because he had studied the Bible, he knew God's law, and he knew that he broke God's law regularly. He was of the mind, I have to be good enough. And he was working so hard, and I know he was frustrated, and I think he was afraid. So he says, I don't love God, I hate him. He gives me all these requirements, and I cannot keep them. But then one day, God opened his eyes as he's reading the Bible to see God's love and his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. And his whole life changed. And so does yours and mine when we see that as well. We see both God's requirements and his forgiveness. And so instead of serving God in fear, Martin Luther and we and others can serve God in righteousness and holiness. Not because we are naturally that, but because God changes us. God does this work. And then in verse 76, Zechariah turns and he's actually now talking to his son directly. And he says, you son, John, you're going to be a prophet of God. Well, John pointed to Jesus. In fact, he I think, literally pointed to Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when you put the two together, you have yet another pointer that Jesus is God. And then Zechariah tells John that God is going to use John to prepare the way for Jesus. 
spiritually. He's going to remind the people of their need for forgiveness. And in verse 77, we see his message. His message is salvation in the forgiveness of sins. What's the other option? What we just talked about, trying to do it myself with the fear and the uncertainty and everything else that comes. But if the message is rescue because God's going to forgive us and he's the one we've offended, well, that's huge. Because God's saying, I'll forgive you. I'll pay the debt. I'll clear the books. Better than that, I'll give you the record of my son Jesus who obeyed me perfectly. And I'll reconcile you to me. And you and I are going to have this relationship that goes on forever. A relationship of love and delight in each other. And then in verse 78, Zechariah says that God is sending John because of his tender mercy. Not just mercy, but tender mercy. Because God cares. And then he uses some figurative language. He talks about the sunrise. And here he's pointing to the Messiah of Jesus, that Jesus is light. That's what you see in the book of John. It says he's light. And that fits with what comes next in verse 79, our condition. Our natural condition is spiritual darkness. We're in the shadow of death, that is, under, in the grip of death, spiritual death. So no wonder there's no peace. And so God sends Jesus to give us spiritual light and spiritual life and peace with God and others. And so Zechariah is giving an announcement, a wonderful announcement of what God would do. That's why they call it good news, because it's news of what God has done. It's not, this is the list of what you need to do and I need to do in order for God to like us. Let me close with two questions. Do you ever get tired, and don't raise your hand, by the way. Do you ever get tired of the good news of the gospel? Do you ever get tired of Christmas? Now, when I say that, I saw you raise your hand. You, you are that stubborn kind of guy. No, no, no. I just said it publicly in front of everybody else. So when I say when you get tired of Christmas, I'm not talking about how we celebrate Christmas. So, for example, I think it was last year, year before, I, I just remember every time I turned on the radio to the Christian station, I heard the song, Little Drummer Boy. I got so tired of Little Drummer Boy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Christmas as the celebration of Jesus and Jesus as the pointer to the good news of God's salvation, his rescue to us. And I will confess that I, at times, I want something more I want something new. I want something exciting. Now, do you realize what that, what that shows? That shows in me and all of us as we have this, the twistedness of our own selfish nature. First, we, we discount, we minimize our need for God to rescue us. Now, we're not going to say that out loud, at least not very often. But in our minds, oh, yeah, uh, you know, the yawn that comes when we think about Christmas and the gospel, that shows right there. We're not, we're not seeing, remembering our need to be rescued. And secondly, we're not satisfied with what the greatest gift God could give us and has given us. We want something else. 
something extra. Now, do you also realize, and all of us feel this way at times, that it just shows how much we need Jesus, how much we need his gift and his grace, because this is, this is us. So let me close with this thought. Think about this. I just asked the question, do you get tired of the good news? And the answer is yes, we all do at times. You and I have the opportunity every day, every day, all through the day, to see the benefits of Jesus' rescue. Every time you and I are selfish, we're unkind, every time we do not love God, every time we do not love others, that's an opportunity for us to see the benefit of, God, of Jesus' rescue. He's covered it. It's done because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Lord, it is both hard to admit but also freeing to admit that this is us, that we need to be rescued. So we celebrate and we thank you for what you have done, for the rescue you've given and the preparation that you gave with John the Baptist and with all of the preparations from the prophets in the Old Testament, all of those things, pointing forward to what you have done, would do, and then now looking back at what you've done. Lord, help us to see that you love us, that you have given so much for us to make us right with you, to cover all that we've done and will do so that you can delight in us and we can delight in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing.